0: You're listening to the Forefront Church Podcast in New York City, where our vision is to see lives, neighborhoods, and our city renewed through Jesus. Hi guys, welcome. I am Jen, I'm the Associate Pastor here at Forefront Brooklyn. And uh, this morning as we kick off our Advent season, this beautiful season of purple and, uh, and Christmas, I want to have a conversation about change. How well do you all handle change? That's my question for you this morning. Do you, uh, do you handle it well? Think back to the last big change in your life. Maybe it wasn't even a big change. Maybe it was a smaller one. Do you get anxious when change comes? Do you get motivated? Do you run from changes in your life? Do you embrace them? I have to admit that for me, I fear change. I really struggle with it. I'm an anxious person, and changes that I can't control or don't expect, oh, they trigger my anxiety like nothing else. And while I have gotten better at it over the years, while I try to catch myself when change is coming and, and know this about myself, it's still really challenging. And I've learned a lot, too, from walking through change with some of my friends over the years. Uh, you know, I've had several conversations and, and walked alongside several good friends as change has come. And, for example, I have a friend recently, um, who, over the past year, she has moved three times, some because she chose to, some for reasons she couldn't control. She had her boyfriend dump her, suddenly. Uh, She had a medical scare that was almost life-threatening. And then she got promoted into her dream job. All that is a lot of change in one year, right? These ups and downs, as I walked through that with her, she was constantly saying things like, no, I got this, you know, I'm handling it, I can do it. But then a couple months ago, panic attacks started rising up in her. And I have to admit that I could relate to that, that... that feeling that maybe there's more going on, that change is affecting us far more than we like to admit sometimes, that we like to think that we're strong and we can handle it, but um, there's all that stuff that happens below the surface that a big season of change throws at us. These questions that come up about, you know, how did my life turn into this from where it was a year ago? And how is God working in my life? And who do I turn to in the midst of change? And so now my next question for all of us is, how well do you handle change in your relationship? with God? Do you allow your relationship with Him to change? Has it changed as you've changed over the years? How is your relationship with God different from when you were 15 or 28 or 45? This is part of being a person of faith, right? Evolving and growing and and taking on whatever changes come our way. And how do we allow our relationship with God to shape us as we walk through all of these changes? Especially in those times when um, it's not a change that we choose. Sometimes we find ourselves being forced to change, forced to confront something we don't want to confront. Because trying to wrap our heads and our hearts around the idea that change ultimately leads to growth, and ultimately can be a good thing, that's something that in our human nature we resist, right? We fear change, we resist it. Throwing ourselves into change, it presents risks, it presents uncertainty, it presents potential failure, and that's all really tough stuff for us to handle as human beings. Our instincts tell us to stay safe to stay with what's comfortable and what's right and secure. You know that saying, better the devil you know than the devil you don't know? Maybe that, you know, if you can relate to that philosophy, maybe that's one of the reasons why you haven't sent out a resume yet, even though you've been complaining about your miserable job for a year. Maybe it's the reason why you struggle to uh, embrace the change of just letting go of a relationship that you know is not healthy for you. Maybe it's the reason you keep running from, from fixing your mistakes, denying that they're even mistakes to begin with, because. You, you don't want to face the hard work and the struggle that comes with um, addressing the things that you need to change about yourself. There's this book that I've been reading called Heart and Mind, The Four Gospel Journey to Radical Transformation by Alexander John Shia. And in it, the author talks about this fourfold journey that comes with spiritual change, when we are changed by God, when we allow ourselves to be spiritually transformed And he says that every pattern across cultures and religions and time and geography follows this kind of four-fold journey, uh, no matter what language we use for it. That every journey begins with the journeyer, asking some form of questioning or uh, inviting in some sort of inquiry about the big stuff in life, the big questions like, who am I? Who's God? What's my purpose? And that questioning, those little and big questions, inevitably lead to a time of trial often involving failures and obstacles to overcome. It's kind of this period of deconstructing these things that you believe in, and figuring out what it looks like to walk with God through the realities and the changes of life. I often, uh, well, for me, I call that part of my life my spiritual breakdown, or my emotional breakdown as well, and all the changes throughout my 20s, all the different apartments, the more jobs than I could even count, uh, all that change for me did bring all these things up to the surface, all these questions, all these desires for how I needed God and needed some sort of foundation to stand on as I sorted through all the different change that was coming at me in my 20s. And I think this is the time, often, that we go searching for God in in people and places and everything other than him, right? We turn to the world to try to figure out what it means to be an adult. But at some point, this this journey continues with God only if we choose to face the fact that maybe our old ways of doing things, our old ways of conceiving um, our relationship with God are no longer working. And at this point, we step into the next phase, this point of surrender, of repentance, of submission to God, right? This is the stuff that you hear the apostles talking about all the time. Uh, Repent, ask for the forgiveness of sins, um, allow yourself to be spiritually transformed, relearn the ways of God's kingdom. And if we're willing to do this, this painful process of letting go of what we think we knew and relearning what God wants for us, then oftentimes uh, we find ourselves with this gift of greater understanding. This wholeness or greater perspective that emerges in our worldview and our view of who God is and how he works in our lives. And oftentimes it only comes with the the care and guidance of a friend walking us through that. But if we can manage to get to that phase, then ultimately on the other side, there's this opportunity to put these great lessons into practice, which I think is the point of it all. This opportunity to live deeper into empathy and to live through love and compassion and service and to step into community and offer those same things to someone else which i believe is really the point of this whole fourfold journey, the spiritual transformation. And these journeys in our lives, they can last for months, they can last for years, and it can happen over and over again. And it's this same pattern that we see reflected communally in our christian calendar. So if you're wondering what we're talking about this morning with this advent lingo and this lighting of the candle and all that stuff, We here at Forefront Brooklyn, we really believe in this rehearsal, this fourfold process of following the Christian calendar together, um, this pattern of it that we go through every year starting today with this very first week, with this first week of Advent. And Advent is this journey of preparation and questioning that brings us into this space where we are asking better questions about who God is and we're preparing and waiting for his presence in our lives. And when Christmas comes, as Jeremiah called it, Christmastide or epiphany, we get this chance to walk with God and to dive deeper into these questions, to get to know him for the person he is and what he has to offer us through his presence in the world. And if we're truly willing to wrestle with these questions, to truly move closer to our God and get to know who he is and what he wants for us, then we might find ourselves having a little bit of a breakdown of sorts, right? And oftentimes this happens in those dark winter months when we hit the Lenten season, where we're being forced to kind of look inside of ourselves and confront some of the dark stuff that maybe we don't really want to change about ourselves, but that God is asking us or calling us to. And the beautiful thing for us rehearsing this story is that we know the ending that's coming, right? This glorious alignment and celebration that we truly get to embrace as a community as we share in the message of the cross and the love that Christ offers us through his death and resurrection. And we do this in this beautiful springtime season of Eastertide. And then finally comes this longer break, ordinary time that we just finished up, which is sort of the season of like fallowness when you let the field just sort of lay empty to rest and rejuvenate and prepare yourself for the rehearsal to begin all over again on this first week of Advent in November. And so the church calls this fourfold journey, Advent, Epiphany, Lent, Eastertide, And then there's ordinary time. And it's this communal rhythm, this pattern that we go on individually and communally so that we might be able to gently guide each other as we walk through it in whatever form in our own lives. And this is a rhythm that the church has been practicing for thousands of years. And so this Advent, as we start this week, we are in this period of waiting. And we're going to go back in order to go forward. We keep going back to these old communal stories. We relive these stories of what it it felt like to um, discover the gospel for the first time so that we might remember Christ's presence in our lives and how he is continuing to work through all the changes. And so I'm excited because this year we are digging into the gospel book of Matthew, this beautiful narrative that Matthew has laid together of all these um, oral histories and these stories that are collected about who Jesus is and who God is through the person of Jesus. And I'm so excited that we're digging into this because there's such beautiful stuff about Christ's presence in the world in Matthew's narrative. And I think one of the important things for us to remember as we dig into this this, this over these next four weeks together in Advent is that uh, Matthew is compiling these stories for the Jewish people. His audience is one of, um, you know, they're the people of Israel who know these great stories of Moses and David and Abraham. Um, It's a part of their tradition. It's part of who they are and how they identify. Um, And now here they are, these Messianic Jews. They believe that Christ is the Messiah. And they're in this place now where they're trying to change. They're trying to understand what it means to have Christ in their lives now and how that's shifting or changing the way that they look at God or the way they understand God, I think. And so Matthew lays out his gospel in a way that helps them to, start, to sort of figure out where Jesus fits into the larger arc of their people. So for example, Matthew chooses to include the details in his Christmas story of how Mary and Joseph and Jesus have to escape to Egypt uh, to escape Herod and the, the killing of firstborn sons. So that story, the killing of a firstborn son, whose story does that remind you of from the Old Testament? Say it all out Moses, right? Yeah. So here's Matthew writing, trying to help parallel some of these great stories, these references, um, these uh, you know references to the prophets, to the to the great figures of the Jewish people, trying to help them understand the significance of who Jesus is and how where to put his birth in the place of their larger story. Okay. And there's all kinds of beautiful stuff happening like this. Matthew has all these great references to mountaintops and to rocks and to temples. And the temple is another thing that's a huge part of the Jewish culture. We see how Jesus especially challenges the temple culture throughout the scriptures. And I think what we have to understand about that is how important the temple is to the Jewish people. Because throughout their thousands of years of this dark and difficult history of being an Israelite, there stood this temple in the hills of Jerusalem. And that temple was the religious, financial, and political heart of their faith and traditions. It was That's Solomon's temple right there. You can see how it's at the center of everything. And it was destroyed a couple of times by different foreign empires, but it was always rebuilt. And it was this sign, this constancy that showed uh, God's faith and hope for his people through the, through the structure that was that temple. And over the centuries, the Jews uh, believed—they came to believe that the temple and the sacrifices and the rituals that were done there, that they quite literally guaranteed and continued God's relationship with them. And in order to understand why they believed that, you have to know that um, this temple was built in the same place that they believe that God created this covenant with Abraham as Abraham went to sacrifice his son, Isaac, which God ultimately stopped the sacrifice of his son, and in that stopping he created this promise this covenant that um, Abraham's descendants would go on to to fill the nations and that they would be a blessed people and Abraham is this father figure who's credited for the lineage of all the Jewish people and for the Muslims and the Christians this is a really significant place in our human history and so of course knowing that and knowing that then you know a thousand years later God led King David to this same exact spot to build an altar there and that David's son Solomon would be the one who would actually build this temple, understanding the significance of those stories and the significance of that placement of that altar and that temple, you can kind of see why these ancient people would believe so strongly that God is present inside that temple, right? Well, and then every morning, these rituals would be done. Every morning, a priest would rise before dawn and pour the blood of a freshly killed lamb over the high altar inside the temple. And they quite literally believed that doing that actually made the sun rise and kept God giving them another day. And they believed that this would be the same spot where, the, where God would usher in the Messiah, that he would come and he would conquer the Roman Empire and he would purify the temple. And this is where the Messiah would return to. And so like I said, this temple was destroyed um, when the Babylonians came in and put the Jews into exile. They tore down this temple, but it was rebuilt 100 years or so later. And over the course of many different foreign empires conquering their land and taking away their rights, the temple was rebuilt, uh, partially destroyed and rebuilt over and over again, always still standing on Solomon's foundation. And so now fast forward, I'm skipping a lot of years of history here for the sake of time, but, uh, and we'll get into it a little bit more in the weeks to come. But if we we fast forward to Jesus' day, okay, then here we are under the Roman Empire, the most oppressive and cruelest of, of them all. And now the temple is called, is known as Herod's Temple, because Herod, the king that, Roman, that the Romans have put over um, the land where Jerusalem is, uh, Herod's come in and, and turned this temple into this architectural jewel in the Middle East, where he's added on, you know, sacrilegious ways to worship himself and Caesar, um, and all that being said, there's still this sacred thing about the temple, right? There's still this, this significance to it as a Jewish person living under the Roman Empire where you're being so heavily taxed that you're living in poverty. You have no say in the law and your hope at this point is that that Messiah will be ushered in sooner rather than later. And so you believe in the pervading culture of the time that being an obedient Jew and following the Mosaic laws and all the commandments and uh, following all these ritual practices that that's the way that the Messiah is going to be ushered in. And you want that to happen sooner rather than later because you want your life back, right? So it makes sense. And now amongst this faction of the Jewish people, there's a group called the Pharisees who hold a lot of influence at this time. And the Pharisees um, are a body of religious lawyers and scribes who have a lot of power over these rules and rituals because they're the guys who really know how to interpret them, right? But they're nitpicky and they don't quite understand the whole original intent of what God wanted. They really maintain these beliefs that God's blessings or wraths are brought upon you based on how observant or how lax you are in observing the Mosaic laws and the ritual practices of the temple. But here's the thing, these dudes were also in the pocket of the Roman Empire. So what were you to do, right? This is the culture that Jesus comes into, this in and out temple culture where lines are being drawn and these puppet priests are creating rules about cleanliness and circumcision and about taxes and required sacrifices that are keeping people, literally keeping people from getting to know the love of God, because there are so many who are not allowed into the temple, who are not allowed in, who can't afford to be a part of this culture. Um, And this is the stuff that makes Jesus more angry than anything else. When lines are drawn and rules are created by human beings or in the ways that we interpret God's word that keep other people out or keep other people away from getting to know God, right? And so throughout Matthew's gospel, uh, Matthew shows Jesus making subversive comments and asking questions and telling parables to challenge this temple culture that's been built. I think we're at a point in history now where uh, the people are worshiping the temple more than they're worshiping God, right? This construct of who they think God is, of of how he's been created by people. And it's, it's making this huge burden for folks, trying to live out this perfection of what it means within this temple culture. And so there's these rules that Jesus comes along and is intentionally breaking, rules about what people he's not allowed to eat with and what people he's not allowed to touch because they're not clean enough or good enough and all these rules about what kind of work he's not allowed to do on the Sabbath, which is potentially one of the worst, I think, rules that you can break of all. And so here in chapter 12, verses six to eight, we see the Pharisees trying to condemn Jesus and his disciples for picking wheat along the side of the road on the Sabbath, picking wheat to eat, right? And this is a major, major rule-breaking that he's, that he and his disciples are doing here. And so Jesus rebukes them in one of their first conflicts in, in Matthew. He rebukes their temple culture saying, I tell you, there is one here who is even greater than the temple, but you would not have condemned my innocent disciples if you knew the meaning of this scripture. I want to show mercy, not offer sacrifices." And that's something that Jesus said earlier in chapter 9, verse 13. He tells the Pharisees, after they've challenged what kind of people he's eating with, he tells them, go and learn what this means. I want you to show mercy, not offer sacrifices. He's quoting a passage from Hosea in the Old Testament here when he says that. And I think what Jesus is trying to say is, I want you to get back to the original intent of these laws. The compassion and love and mercy that God is offering through uh, what He did when He passed on the Mosaic um, laws and covenants—this like, is this is not what this is about. He doesn't want you nitpicking the rules. This isn't this temple culture that we've built up. That's not what God is calling us to. There is one who's even greater than the temple, and Jesus is obviously referring to Himself there. And I think what he's trying to do, what he does throughout his ministry, is is attempt to purify the temple, to get back to the way that things are supposed to be, to help people understand the original intent of why God gave them these rules and laws to begin with. Because you see, if you are a Messianic Jew at this time, or a Jew in general at this time, you are looking for the Messiah to come and purify the temple. You were looking for him to make it uh, back to what it was supposed to be. And you're expecting that to also mean he's going to conquer the Roman Empire and come in with a giant army, just like the world tells you strong leaders come in as. But instead, we get this baby in a manger. We get this peasant guy from um, this town that you know, doesn't seem at all like the giant king that we expected God to usher into the world, right? And he didn't come through the temple like they were expecting. So all these things about Jesus, is not, they're not lining up in the brains of these people who are living in this temple culture. You can imagine how hard it must have been for them to understand that despite all the authority that God is clearly giving through the person of Jesus, it's really hard for them to wrap their brains around the fact that the Messiah has come and that everything has changed because of that. Even his disciples struggle with this. So in Matthew 24, you see Jesus saying to them the same kind of thing. You know, uh, I actually like how Eugene Eugene Peterson put it in his translation of the Bible in the message, his contemporary translation. He says, Jesus then left the temple. As he walked away, his disciples pointed out how very impressive the temple architecture was. They're like, look, Jesus it's so beautiful. And Jesus said, you're not impressed by all this sheer size, are you? The truth of the matter is that there is not a stone in that building that's not going to end up in a pile of rubble. Jesus is trying to tell them, don't put your faith in these worldly things. This is just stone and rock and tradition. There is something greater than the temple. The Messiah is here. Put your faith in me. Throughout the scriptures, he has to repeat it a million times. I am present with you always. I am the only thing that's not going to crumble in this world. Put your faith, make me your foundation. And I think that uh, Jesus knew something the disciples did not in here. And I think this is one of the reasons why Matthew puts so much emphasis on these conversations about the temple, is that Matthew is writing to the Christians in the, in the first century. Okay, And if we continue on that history of the temple, then you'll, you'll learn that in about 70 A.D., um, the Roman-Jewish wars happen, and they completely obliterate the temple, down to the last pile of rubble right? Um, All these sacred artifacts, these walls that they deemed so important. There's this huge battle, and and so many lives are lost. It's bloody and ugly and worse than ever before, and the temple is destroyed in Jerusalem. So now Matthew is compiling his gospel, his stories, for these Messianic Jews who are scattering into the countryside and trying to figure out what it means to be the church in Antioch and Galilee and And for the first time, they don't have this temple culture to turn to. They can't turn to a building in order to find God. And this is what Matthew's trying to tell them. He's trying to give them hope to help them realize this really radical concept that no longer do you need to go into a building or step onto a holy mountain to find God, that his spirit, his presence is alive and thriving in each one of his disciples and each member of his church to put your faith in fallible structures, be they temple cultures or institutions or a system of beliefs or anything else, is to build your house upon sand, the only rock that you can count on. The only constant in a life that's ever-changing is the enduring love of the gospel, is the presence of Christ Jesus, the cornerstone and foundation in which we should all build our lives upon. That's what he's saying when he says, there's one here who's even greater than the temple. And for Matthew, this reality of God's presence is tied to the very existence of Jesus, because when he's born, Matthew's now able to say, oh, God is with us. And he believes, of course, that God has been with us in the past, that that God was with the people of Israel in the beginning and that he always will be. But now God is manifested into this, uh, this person of Jesus, and that is unprecedented. No longer do you have to go into the temple to find God. No longer do you have to nitpick over the rules about who's in and who's out. Because Jesus represents something that's greater than the temple. Jesus is present in and amongst us in and through all time and in all space. And this is the good news of Christmas. This is the good news of his birth yet again this Advent season. This is why we continue to remember these stories and go back and rehearse this journey over and over. Because across time and culture, we as human beings, we desire permanence. We desire organization. We desire to have things clearly laid out for us. We want to know who's in and out. We want, to be, we want to know if we're blessed or if we're condemned. It makes life so much easier for us to have rules and to just be obedient and to know, I follow the rule, I'm blessed by God, I'm loved, thanks. That's so much easier for us, right? So throughout human history, we've constantly sought out solace and uh, permanence and large structures and skyscrapers built to worship Our temples of finance and uh, cathedrals meant to worship our temples of religion. And although our lives today could not be more different than those of the people in these early first centuries, we still have temple cultures we need to deconstruct. Each of us. Each of us has beliefs and aspects in our own lives that we regard as fundamental on which we rely for our inner stability, on those things that we rely on to help keep our anxiety at bay, right? To help us order and organize the world. It's our coping mechanisms when change comes. And these things might be health or love or body. They might be derived from your family or the uh, religion that you grew up in. They help you make order and and meaning and organize your lives. Um, So, for example, maybe you have a temple that you need to deconstruct this Advent season of who you thought God was when you were attending Sunday school as a kid. Maybe you've been denying some of the questions that you've had as you've changed and evolved as an adult over the years, and maybe you've thought of God as this inflexible thing that um, has to stay just as present as he was when you were at that camp with him when you were 20, right? But perhaps maybe it's not that God changes, but that we change, and that our relationship with God evolves as we evolve as people. And so this Advent season, I hope that we can start to ask ourselves some questions. What are your temples? What are you being called to deconstruct in your faith walk with God this calendar year? What do you find yourself fighting for, and why? What kind of peace and security does it bring for you? What hope does it give you? Have you stopped worshiping God in some ways and instead worshiping uh, mindless traditions or systems of belief? Or um, have you stopped growing and learning and evolving in your relationship with God? In what ways do you need to deconstruct some of your beliefs and own them in a fresh light? Allow God's presence to be um, awake and alive and fresh in you again this Advent season. Because the truth of the matter is that laws are made that work against us, Terrorists set off bombs, loved ones die. Illnesses threaten the holidays, and jobs are lost, miscarriages happen, people cheat and lie, and greed allows for some to thrive while others starve. The only thing that we can really count on in life is that change will come, that it will happen. And so what do you build your foundation on? As we get into Advent, we find hope in the deconstruction of the temple, that God is not in this place alone, right? We find joy in the fact that the Gospel of Matthew tells us there is a new foundation, and it's through the grace and peace of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is and was and always will be present and alive within us. We find freedom in this good and glorious news that we are free to find hope, not in rebuilding and holding tight to our temples of beliefs, but in changing and growing and evolving together Jesus is the voice of God telling us that we can find strength not in a building or an idea, not in a relationship, a set of political ideals, a job, or a system of religion even, but that strength is found in the one and only Savior born again this Christmas. That strength is found in the gospel message, the good news for everyone. And to go through life's changes with that as your foundation means that you're growing and learning. Change while you're founded on the beliefs that God's good news is for everyone, that Christ is alive and present in your life, change then means that you're not settling for anyone's idea of what God should look like or what life should look like. Change means you're trying new things and understanding more about yourself. It means you're willing to bend and flex as you receive new information from God about your true self and the world around you. Change means you're allowing other people's stories to to embrace empathy and, and to allow human beings to help Explain the divine for you. And getting to know God looks a whole lot like getting to know yourself. Change is an essential part of your faith journey. And so I think about that in community, as we evolve into this um, growing community, changing community, right? And here we are at the start of another calendar year. And Ben and I were reflecting on where we were at this time last year in these first weeks of Advent. And I think about that and how far we've come and how painful the change has been, how hard the growth has been over the past year as we've rehearsed the calendar together. I think about how last year at this time, Jonathan, our senior pastor, uh, he had just stepped up into this new leadership role and he was still figuring out what it looked like and what it meant. And I myself was just being ordained as your associate pastor in these first couple weeks of Advent, and how much growth and change has resulted because of that. And I think about how we were wrestling with what was happening in our world at this time last year. You know what happened on November 24th last year? A grand jury announced that they would not indict Darrell Wilson for his actions in the fatal shooting of Michael Brown. And CNN reported that the next day, thousands of people in 170 cities across our country rallied in protest against that decision. Have you guys been watching the news in the past weekend? And seeing how we are still deconstructing this temple of institutional racism that we have built up for hundreds of years as a country, right? And here we are still in this period of deconstructing this phase of figuring out what it looks like to break that apart. And here we are still wrestling with things that happened last fall in Chicago and still having protests, still trying to confront these temples that we've built up around us as a country. And then I look around the world and I see how we have these temples of belief that inform um, who's in and who's out, these temples of belief that create terrorists and, and conflicts with refugees. And I can start to imagine how these temples that we've built in our world would cause a person to pick up a gun and walk into a women's clinic or a movie theater or who knows where, because they're trying to uphold this, this safety and security and this temple that they've built into their lives, right? It starts to become easier to understand how messed up our world can be when we build our temples on something other than Jesus. And so I think about how our church Struggles to figure out how to respond to our city and our world in the midst of all this, right? Of these changes that are constantly being thrown at us. And I think about where we were last Advent, trying to just figure out these new leadership roles and where we're going as a church. And then I think about this fall and how far we've come and the incredible conversations of reconciliation that happened around our faith, culture, and questions series. And I think about how we are called to be change makers, to be agents of peace and hope and light in this world, right? To be people who usher in the presence of Jesus. And I have great hope for who we will be as a church in this next calendar year. I'm excited to see what God will do, how his presence will be felt and alive in these conversations of reconciliation and change in the year to come. And so this morning, I want to encourage you guys to join us individually on this journey. To embrace Advent for the first time, if you never have before, or to look at it with fresh light and to allow yourselves to let those questions rise to the surface. And I want to close this out by reading some of the words of Richard Rohr um, from his Daily Meditations for Advent, which is a, a daily book that you can follow along if you're looking for some devotional time this Advent season. And I'm actually going to read the passage that's from Christmas Day. So if you guys will just bow your heads with me. I'm going to read this kind of as our closing prayer and this reminder of what we're going for, what we're all seeking in Christ's presence this Advent season. Father God, help us to remember that the kingdom is finally to be identified as the Lord Jesus himself. When we say, come Lord Jesus, on Christmas Day this year, We are are preferring his lordship, your lordship, to any other loyalty system or any other final frame of reference. If we believe Jesus is Lord, then Caesar is not. If Jesus is Lord, then the economy and stock market are not. If Jesus is Lord, then my house and my possessions, my family and job are not. If Jesus is Lord, then I am not. What we are all searching for, in this Advent season is someone to surrender to. Someone we can prefer to life itself. And here's the wonderful surprise that God is the only one we can surrender to without losing ourselves. The irony that when we find ourselves in him, now we have a whole new field of meaning to navigate. And this happens on a lesser level in every great love in our lifetime, but it's always this leap of faith ahead of time. And Lord, it feels counterintuitive, but it is the promise that came into the world on that first Christmas day, that promise we get to discover again together each calendar year, full of grace and truth, that Jesus Christ, your Son, is the gift totally given, free for the taking, once and for all, to everybody and all of creation. And henceforth, humanity has the right to know that it is good to be human Good to live on this earth. Good to have a body because God in Jesus chose and said yes to our humanity. Not not only is it now always Advent, but now every day can be Christmas because the one we thought we were just waiting for has come once and for all. Amen.